Virtuous Men, a podcast devoted to sharing the lives of men of history, fiction, and today, and the virtues they personify. Welcome to our latest bonus episode. In this episode, we'll share four intriguing spy stories from history and discuss them with our friends Ethan and Jared from A Brother's Creed. This is part one. Hey everybody, this is Scott from Virtuous Men, and I am with members of A Brother's Creed, and of course my other Virtuous Man over here. Hello. And what's your name again, for those that have forgotten already? I'm Jamie. All right, and we have Ethan and Jared from A Brother's Creed, and we are doing another collaboration. Hey guys. Hey, how's it going? Thanks so much uh, hey guys. for going well. doing this collab with us. Oh yeah, it's always fun working with you guys, totally. Yeah, we're, we're excited about it. Today we're, we're bringing all of our minds together in some of the coolest spy stories that we can think of That's oh yeah right. yeah I, I think we're i think we've all kind of picked something very different so i'm mm-hmm. excited to, to yeah that. well i mean yeah i think we i think the way it's gone is so you guys reached out to us in the very beginning before when we started working together and that was more of just an interview from you guys to us and then we suggested the last collaboration we did and now it was you guys oh no and then it was you guys this is the fourth time we've chatted yeah no this is the fourth time okay i've got the timeline next really up we did yeah. the first interview with you guys and then we did famous we did, duos uh, duos and then we, did we did underdogs, duos, and, then we yeah. did underdogs and now we're doing spies that's right yeah 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 that's true well it's, it's been yeah. great and i think we're, we we have goes to get a great mix i mean like i feel like last time we, we met we had such a good mix of, of different types well, I think last time we met, me and Ethan did war stories and you guys did uh, like sports, sports stories. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Which is totally weird because I am not a sports fan. So I, <laughs> I found that a little strange that I would be doing something like that. But whenever you think of the word underdog, I find you kind of automatically think sports. Yeah. yeah. I don't even know why, but it just is one of those things. <laughs> I think of tyranny for some reason. <laughs> a tyrannical government stepping like, on the neck like of it. someone. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That is true. So, well, excellent. So, spy stories today. I just watched that movie Gray Man on Netflix. Uh, I don't know if you guys have seen that. It's excellent movie. Uh, probably one of the one of the best spy movies I've ever seen. Uh, and so, I'm really excited for today to hear some of these excellent stories. We got Scott up first today, right? That's right. Any preamble to your uh, video here? Yeah, he's a very a very ambiguous character from the ancient world. Okay. So that's really all I can say to that. All right. Excellent. Well, we'll play this and then we'll chat about uh, chat about it afterwards. The politician paced the floor of the Senate, his thoughts in a state of turmoil. His career had been eventful and had seen its share of difficulties, but what he was faced with now made every other event look small and irrelevant. He couldn't bear the thought of letting things go on as they were, yet could not imagine things as they might be if he failed to act. He pulled a dagger from his robes, turning it over in his hands, knowing that this piece of forged metal would be the key to saving the Roman Republic. Marcus Junius Brutus, known most commonly today as Brutus, was born into a noble family in 85 BC. His ancestors were among those who staunchly defended the Roman Republic, even going so far as to make the people swear an oath to never allow a king to rule over Rome. 
His father had been killed by the renowned general and statesman Pompey the Great, a figure who would later play a significant role in Brutus's political development. Brutus was raised by his uncle Cato the Younger. When Cato was appointed to the Senate, Brutus served as his assistant and eventually served as a moneyer, or one who oversees the minting of coins. Julius Caesar had risen to extraordinary power by this time, and even had Brutus's mother as one of his many mistresses. He reportedly took a liking to Brutus, and had what some would call a fatherly relationship with the young man. Yet Brutus himself would soon be caught between allegiances. Julius Caesar and Pompey, who had once been allies, were now bitter rivals. The Senate had demanded Caesar place his armies back under their control, which he refused to do. This led to the outbreak of civil war. Brutus wanted to remain loyal to his mother's lover and his protector, but he could also see how irrational Caesar was behaving. With great reluctance, he sided with Pompey, his father's killer. This alliance culminated in the Battle of Pharsalus in 48 BC. Ultimately, Pompey was defeated, and Brutus was supposedly one of the first to realign himself with Caesar. Caesar welcomed Brutus back instead of harshly punishing him, no doubt in part due to his relationship with his mother and for his own political self-interest. Brutus, with his political future seemingly secure, fully expected Caesar to defend the Republic that had been Rome's foundation. But Caesar's lust for power and ever-growing god complex began to come to light. Caesar declared himself dictator for life, something Brutus, who was well known for his devotion to his ancestors, could not stand for. The possibility of Caesar becoming king of the Romans violated all he believed in. This was not the Rome he wanted for the future. In 44 BC, it was decided that the only way to stop the potential political catastrophes would be to assassinate Caesar. There remains debate as to who suggested the plot, but there is no doubt that Brutus and fellow Senate member Cassius were the leaders. Brutus, who was highly regarded by Caesar, proved to be the perfect spy. Ever the shrewd politician, Brutus played the game, acting the part of friend and loyal servant while secretly turning the wheel of betrayal against his target. While playing the dual roles of politician and conspirator, he and Cassius managed to recruit dozens more anti-Caesar senators into the plot. He could not ask them outright if they wanted to kill Caesar, but he gradually played upon their growing dislike of Caesar and his tyrannical ways to convince them that assassination was the only way forward. With his group of conspirators formed and his espionage slowly unfolding, they decided to murder the dictator on March 15th, a day that history would forever remember as the Ides of March. Caesar and the senators entered the Senate floor for a meeting. Everything was going according to plan. To him, it was a day like any other. But this familiar atmosphere suddenly turned. Some of the senators quickly unsheathed daggers from their robes, their faces showing a mix of rage and bliss. Caesar's eyes widened, the realization sinking in. He tried to fight back, but it was no use. The senators, including Brutus, began thrusting their blades into the tyrant. Within minutes, he lay lifeless on the floor of the Roman Senate. 
Despite the plot's success, the aftermath proved not to be so fortunate. The outrage over the assassination not only caused Brutus and Cassius to flee Rome, but plunged Rome into a series of civil wars. They ended up in Greece, where they each amassed armies to fight the forces of Roman general Mark Antony and Octavian, Caesar's adopted son. In 42 BC, multiple battles occurred at Philippi. When it became clear that both Brutus and Cassius were facing imminent defeat, the men killed themselves. The Roman Republic that Brutus fought so hard to defend would come to an end when Octavian became the first emperor of Rome. Rome was a republic no more. Ever since his death, Brutus has remained a divisive figure. While some see him as a noble hero who fought to defend Rome from perceived destruction, he is equally viewed as a cruel, self-absorbed traitor whose name is synonymous with betrayal. So, in the end, who was Marcus Junius Brutus? A spy? A traitor? A hero? A man of nobility? A man of vanity? Was he all of these things at once? The debate, like his legendary act of espionage and subterfuge, will continue to live on. Awesome. I, I love that you finished it with the word subterfuge. That's a great word. Yeah. <laughs> it, make, it makes me sound smarter than I really am. Brilliant. That was good. Yes. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. Very interesting. It's so interesting how, you know, these people sometimes in history, when you review things, sometimes the, the intended consequence of what they thought would happen really doesn't end up happening. And they end up, you know, dying alone or losing altogether, you know. And uh, sometimes it makes you wonder, who are the heroes and who are the villains? I mean, sometimes we learn in school, like, well, these are the good people, these are the bad people, but really, you know, which side was good or bad? It's, it, it's up for debate, you know? Well, and that's what was so, I think what was so interesting about doing Brutus is that he wasn't a career spy. Like espionage wasn't his job, quote unquote. And when we think of spies, we don't think of antiquity, but, you know, spies go back to the ancient world too. You know, it's no different than it is now. So I, I liked the fact that it was kind of out of left field and, and the fact that uh, there's some ambiguity to who he was, you know, like there, there are people who think he was a great man and people who think he's nothing more than a traitor, you know? Yeah. It's, so it's interesting. I, I like the ambiguity of who he was like, you know, he wasn't a career spy. He wasn't really any of these things, but you know, he's many things to many people. I remember in school, I remember talking about that in school and it was just like, Oh, Brutus was a, he was a traitor and he, you know, was a traitor to his country and everything else. But really, I mean, listening to the story, he was almost kind of a, a hero to a certain extent because he, he didn't want tyranny and he didn't want just one person to have all the power. I mean, he, 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 and so he was doing everything he could to defend that in the future of that in, in his country. Interesting. Yeah, totally. And, and there's so many other details that I could have put in there, but for the sake of time, obviously you can't put all that in there, but there is a lot more to the story than what I did. Like, I feel like I just scratched the surface, but there was a lot of, a lot more political intrigue and stuff related to the relationship between him and Caesar and things that Caesar did that led to the wars in Rome. And so, I mean, there's just so much more to it than that, that it, it really does make, make you wonder, was he a hero? Well, he kind of was. He, was he a traitor? Absolutely. But, 
you know, he was all of these things. And that's, that's just fascinating. I feel like so many figures in history are like that, where they're very contradictory. Like they have these really good, admirable qualities, but they also do pretty horrible things, you know? They're humans. Yeah. Right. Excellent uh, story there. I love that. That's, that's, that is from antiquity. Mine's a little bit more modern than that. Well, not actually not, not too modern. Uh, I believe I'm next, right? I believe so. All right. So, uh, mine is about a, uh, it's a, it's a story from the South. Uh, so I'll go ahead and play this here. This is a legendary tale of the Siren of Shenandoah, the Rebel Joan of Arc, La Belle Rebelle, the Cleopatra of the Secession, and most recently dubbed the Confederate Matahari. This is the story of Belle Boyd, a notorious female spy from the American Civil War. Belle Boyd was a tenacious and headstrong woman born in West Virginia, 1844. The eldest of eight children, this daughter of a shoemaker, had a mind of her own from a young age. At age 11, it was said that Belle protested her exclusion from an adult dinner party by riding her horse into the dining room and asking, well, my horse is old enough, isn't he? The family did own slaves, but history shows that they were very kind to them. One slave, Eliza Corsi, had a very close relationship with Belle. The granddaughter of this slave, Eliza Corsi, wrote that her grandmother was a runaway slave from the Deep South, and she found refuge with the Boyds as their slave. The Boyds consider Eliza a trusted confidant within the family. Every night by candlelight, Belle defied the law and taught Elsa to read and write. Belle wrote in her memoir, Slavery, like all other imperfect forms of society, will have its day, but the time for its final extinction in the Confederate States of America has not yet arrived. Elsa Corsi would later be freed, but stayed on as an assistant to Belle. As Belle got older, she went to Baltimore's Mount Washington Female College, which is where Southern girls were schooled in the ways of becoming a lady. After her formal societal debut in Washington, she returned to Shenandoah Valley in 1861, shortly after the fall of Fort Sumter in South Carolina, which marked the start of the American Civil War. Within three months of her return home, the war had reached her doorstep in Martinsburg, Virginia, when General Robert Patterson captured the city. The Union soldiers ransacked the businesses and homes in the city, leaving little behind. On July 4, 1861, some drunken Union soldiers who were raiding homes came to the Boyd home and wanted to raise a Yankee flag over their door. Benjamin Boyd, the father of the family, had volunteered with the Stonewall Brigade, thus leaving his wife and children at home. Bell's mother, Mary Boyd, stepped forward and said, Men, every member of this household will die before that flag shall be raised over us. One 25-year-old Union soldier from the Pennsylvania Volunteers, in response, tried to push his way into the house while physically threatening Mary Boyd. In Bell's personal diary, she wrote, The man addressed my mother and myself in language as offensive as it is possible to conceive. I could stand it no longer. We ladies were obliged to go armed in order to protect ourselves as best we might from insult and outrage. In response to the aggression, 
Bell took out a Colt 1845 pocket pistol and shot him dead. This encounter and others would sow seeds of vengeance in her that began to consume her, thus setting her on the path of being a rebel spy at age 17. Bell Boyd had a unique appearance to say the least. The New York Tribune at the time described her attire as she wore a gray wolf frock coat and a kepi hat, a gold palmetto tree pin beneath her beautiful chin, a rebel soldier's belt around her waist, and a velvet band across her forehead with the seven stars of the Confederacy, shedding their pale light therefrom. The only additional ornament she required to render herself perfectly beautiful was a Yankee halter encircling her neck. Her flirtatious attitude was her strongest influence. Contemporaries noted that without being beautiful, she is very attractive, quite tall, a superb figure, and dressed with much taste. A reporter of the time, speaking on Bell's physical presentation, said that, quote, her longish nose and protruding teeth made her a bit horse-faced, close quote. She was at ease in her own body and willing to use it as a subversive tool. Bell even had a pet crow with a split tongue that she trained to say Miss Bell, Stonewall, and General Lee. Miss Bell looked for opportunities to help the cause wherever she could. Through family connections, she became a courier delivering messages for the Confederate generals Stonewall Jackson, PGT Bogart, and J.E.B. Stewart, and Union officers as well. She would openly walk into Union camps dressed in her typical aforementioned attire. A brazen woman dressed like a rebel walking through a Union soldier camp was a shocking sight to see to many. Her brazenness became part of her costume. After all, how dangerous could an open foe possibly be? Well, we She would gather information by eavesdropping in on conversations and war councils. She would steal weapons from the Union camps by weaving sabers in through the wires of her hoop skirt. She would also steal pistols and medicines from the Union camp to distribute among her Confederate counterparts. This bold, seductive, and cunning woman caught the attention of many on the Union and Confederate sides. When General Nathan Banks set up a temporary headquarters in her parents' home, she sent shockwaves across the Shenandoah Valley when she draped a Confederate flag around the head of General Nathan Banks himself. Her boldness and allegiance was legendary. She hid herself in an armoire and through a hole in the door was able to eavesdrop in on a war council with General Nathan Banks. She learned that the general's men had been ordered to march away from Front Royal. She rode 15 miles that night under the cover of darkness to General Stonewall Jackson to notify him of the impending Union troop withdrawal. Several weeks later, Jackson's forces moved to attack Front Royal. She knew she needed to get an update to the general on the status of the Union soldiers. Running through the open field with bullets whizzing past her, the crack of cannon fire in the air, she waved her white bonnet in grandiose loops to signal the Confederate troops to advance. This caught the eye of Jackson's staff officer, Hentley Douglas. Douglas wrote, It took only a few minutes for my horse to carry me, to meet the romantic maiden whose tall, supple, and graceful figure struck me as soon as I came in sight of her. 
Bell told him, Tell General Stonewall Jackson that only 1,000 Yanks are holding Front Royal under Colonel John Kenley. If our boys don't take them now, the Yanks could meet up with more troops in Strasburg, Winchester, and Harper's Ferry to set a trap for us. Have Jackson charge down quickly to catch them all. I must hurry back. Goodbye and my love to all the dear boys. The information supplied by Bell may have led to the victory of Jackson's men at Front Royal. Although a minor victory in Jackson's campaign, the event brought her national fame in the Confederacy and the Union States. After the Battle of Front Royal, she became a subject of interest for the Union Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton. He put together a file on her and sought to have her captured. One detective wrote to the Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, quote, She is an open, earnest, and undisguised secessionist, and talks secession on all practicable occasions. Informant considers her more efficient in carrying news to the rebels of our operations than any three men in the valley. In July of 1862, the Secretary of War was made aware that the Siren of Shenandoah had fallen in love with or is making a victim of Dr. George Rex, the medical director of the First Army Corps. Bell was arrested on Edward Stanton's orders. After being arrested, she wept when she learned that her latest love interest was a Union spy posing as a Confederate soldier. He had tricked her into giving him a letter intended for Stonewall Jackson and turned it in as evidence against her to the Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton. Bell knew just as well as any other that all's fair in love and war. Bell was in and out of prisons six or seven times. Even within the prison system, she would charm guards and send information out to her counterparts outside of the prison through a communication system she had come up with. Her counterpart outside the prison would shoot an arrow with a rubber ball on the tip into her cell. She would then sew messages inside the rubber ball and throw it back over the prison cell walls. Bell was released from prison and tried to flee to England. She was caught by Union forces, but she fell in love with a Union naval officer on the boat that captured her. The Union naval officer let her and other Confederate officers free after being captured. This allowed her to flee to England. To escape his court-martial for the act, he also fled to England and married Bella Boyd in August of 1864. After living a short time in, U in the UK, she became an actress and began to write down her memoirs of her escapades during the war. After the death of her husband, she moved back to America and was a successful stage actress. She later would go around and lecture on her war experiences and build her show as The Perils of a Spy and herself as Cleopatra of the Secession. Later in life, she married a former Union soldier and was married for 15 years. She later divorced him and married a young actor. As she grew older, she lamented, Fortune has played me a sad trick by letting me live on and on. In a late interview, Belle herself characterized her life as if it were one long sin that needed to be confessed. With one pointed exception, she said, I have lied, sworn, killed, I guess, and I have stolen, but I thank God that I can say on my deathbed that I am a virtuous woman. At age 56, she died of a heart attack. Belle Boyd isn't remembered today for the efficiency of her spying, but for the way she went about it. Her brazen personality mixed with the charm of a Southern woman created a special mix that allowed her to play a unique role in history.
Her spying did not topple nations or lead to major breakthroughs in the war, but her example as a female patriot supporting the cause she cared about showed that women could get under the skin of the enemy, on many occasions easier than a man could. Wow, I, I gotta ask right away, who, who's the who's the voice? That's my wife. The lady's voice. <laughs> Your wife, I thought so. <laughs> yes, she, she had a, a good, a good southern impressive. good southern accent. Yes, she'll appreciate that. She she definitely was nervous about her southern accent. I said, no one's gonna know. Just do it. <laughs> yeah, it was good. good. That was excellent. Yeah, well, ba- just based on the music selection alone, that was one of your best audio achievements for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate it. It was good. I, I, that's I, that's kind of. It's a tragic life. It's interesting because on a lot of these ones and that, that we kind of go through, you know, it's a hard life to, to live kind of a life of really lies to a certain extent. I mean, you're always trying to trick somebody and then she fell in love with somebody who was tricking her. And then she, you know, and so it, it's just, I mean, I guess all is fair in love and war, I guess is what she said, but yeah. uh, that's, that's, that's brutal, but Hey, it's funny because she ended up marrying two Union soldiers in her lifetime. Uh, yeah. You know, the first one died and the second one she divorced him after 15 years. But, um, you know, it just her her life was interesting. And I thought the Siren of Shannon Doe was like the the most epic name. <laughs> yeah. No I was going to say, it's amazing that somebody with a name like that isn't more famous because that is an epic name. <laughs> Yeah, it's also interesting. You you said uh, she wasn't exactly a looker by by your what did you what did you uh, what, what did they say she was? She, had she the, well, well one of the re- horse. yeah one of the reporters said she was a bit horse faced, but that was a union <laughs> reporter, a longest a longish nose and teeth that stuck out or something yeah, like that. But that was a union, oh, that was a union reporter. But she was so. able to fool so many men, even even though. Oh yeah. She, so you just like walk into camp and just start up conversations. Well, it's interesting too because it, it really it really eliminates too like what the advantages of being a woman in a time like that. You know yeah. about you know she may not have been the most attractive human being on the planet, but she could but she's still a woman among a bunch of men. You know yeah. So right. that that completely changes the game as far as you look at it. Well, I think it, it's a matter of perspective too. The reporter that said she was horse face was a union reporter. And so obviously they were trying yeah. to like per- make her out to be like some kind of uh, loose woman. It was just around, you know, like the painting the Confederates is bad. But the Confederates, you know, the the, the one uh, I think was Lieutenant or, or Staff Sergeant Daniels. He was like, it was a fair maiden in the field. And I ran up to her, you know, <laughs> yeah. this romantic sight. With and, the figure of a, yeah. right, a modern day Lady Godiva. <laughs> yeah, so... Well, it's interesting too. I think her her observation later in life was interesting about how it was misfor- a misfortune that she lived a long time. I think that's very telling because it, it almost seems like she understood that if she had died in the war or something like that, that she would have become a, a more legendary figure, you know. And she's probably right about that, you know, like that. You, you especially in a profession like that where you could probably get caught and imprisoned or executed at any moment, you know. She was probably hoping to go out in a blaze of glory in such a way, but no, it's like the war is over and she just lives on and on until nobody remembers her. So it's an interesting perspective. Yeah. But also I think that, I don't know if it was so much that she was wanted to be like a crazy spy, but like her dad was one of the men in Stonewall Jackson's brigade. So informing Stonewall Jackson of what the union soldiers are doing was helping save her dad. 
And like when she said, you know, give the boys my love, she was talking about her dad and others that she loved. And so, uh, you know, I didn't really do a lot of research into what happened to her dad, but, or or when he, or if he died, but, uh, you know, she was just, uh, everybody else was about the cause and she was just trying to get, get in on the action, I think, and do, do what, you know, she felt her part was, I guess. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe there was, you know, people that she went to school with and her friends that were also in there. So that, yeah. that's an interesting way to look at it too, is that she wasn't maybe so trying to be tricky or everything, but she was just trying to save the people that she loved. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. And also I was like, when I read that she had a pet crow that she taught to teach, <laughs> she taught to say General Lee Stonewall and uh, Miss Bell. I was like, Whoa, this is pretty cool. I actually had to go look up several YouTube videos and uh, people do teach crows and ravens to speak like parrots. So that was pretty cool. Wow. Really? Yeah. That's amazing. She could have been a Disney princess. <laughs> there you go. Easily. Easily. You got a you got a pet a pet sidekick. I mean, you got that can talk. I mean, you got a maid right there. <laughs> yeah, I I'm sure if uh if, if Disney had it in its vaults about the uh, Confederate Cleopatra, they probably would have locked that one away by now. <laughs> <laughs> probably so probably so <laughs> would have been popular in one, one specific area of the right country. yeah exactly <laughs> yeah it would have been the biggest hit of all time yeah yeah this episode of virtuous men was written and recorded by jamie adams scott einig and our friends ethan and jared thomas of our brother's creed if you enjoyed this episode leave us a review and a comment wherever you're listening And follow us on our Instagram page at virtuous underscore men. Tune in next time for part two of our bonus episode, where we share and discuss two more stories of spies and espionage.